You've found the place where healthcare's foremost leaders, thinkers, doers all come to share, to inspire, and to build a better healthcare world, one idea at a time. This is Patient No Longer. Welcome in. I'm Ryan Donahue, thought leader, author, and strategic advisor with NRC Health and host of Patient No Longer, the podcast in search of what's new, what's next, and what's making healthcare more human. Welcome back to another episode of the Patient No Longer podcast. I am excited to be joined by a returning guest to the podcast, and that is Jorge Torres. Hello, Jorge. How you doing, Ryan? Thanks for having me here again. And having you back. And if you haven't listened to his first episode, it was one of the most listened to that we had. Jorge is a culture architect and managing partner at JIT Associates Advol Consulting. He's all about improving the human experience and operations performance in people-intensive industries, such as healthcare, maybe. He's got a new book out. It's Performance Habit, Drive Your Team to Thrive in the Fifth Revolution. So I'm just going to start right there, Jorge. What is the fifth revolution? That is a term that I got exposed to maybe three years ago and during a philosophy class. And I really got hooked into it because, I mean, to talk about the fifth revolution, I got to first talk about the first four revolutions. The thing is, first revolution was the steam mechanization, 1784. The second one was mass production with electricity and combustion engine. The third one many of us live, which is electronic systems, computers. We're living right now the fourth revolution. It is called cyber-physical. Some are calling it like transhumanism. And during these 230 years of revolutions, something very drastic has happened with human beings. Because before the first revolution, just imagine how was life before all these technology revolutions, there was a strong sense of belonging in family and communities. There was a strong sense of purpose. Maybe intuitively, people knew why the purpose of life. There was time for work, time for food, time for God, time for family, time for fun. And there were expected outcomes throughout the year. Time to prepare, time to sow, time to wait, time to harvest, and time to enjoy the fruits of your work. And everything was in a sense of relevance. What I do is relevant. I, I depend on you and you depend on me, community-based. So think about when this revolution started and you pull these people out of their towns into big cities, inside a plant, to pull a lever all day long. We broke that sense of purpose that sense of relevance. So during these 200 and something years, human beings have lost the sense of what being a human. That's when you look at numbers, that's where depression, alcoholism, drug addiction stuff. During these 330 years, everything became a transaction. As a matter of fact, HR, the term, means that just like buying water napkins, I can buy your time. Yes fully transactional. So we move from a we environment teamwork to the extreme of the I want, I need, I demand, iPhone, iPad. So in a way, society is kind of lost. But there's philosophers, psychologists, 
archaeologists that believe that the pendle moved from one side to another one and is starting to come back. Because you can see that with people, these newer generations do not get motivated with the way other generations got motivated. They're looking for more purpose-driven ventures. Like if they hear of a stray dog that is lost in the street, they do a GoFundMe campaign to save that dog. And it has thousands of dollars overnight. Correct. So these generations are like eager. So the fifth revolution is going to be called humanistic, not humanism. Humanism is been happening since 1700s, which is replacing God with the human. Humanistic is going back to basics. And those organizations that can make the transition from transaction to relation will be the ones that will survive. So that's, in a nutshell, what the revolution is about. Humanistic revolution. And I think that's so profound. It's something you just don't hear much about. And the other thing that you clearly illustrated with the pendulum analogy is that, you know, this is going to swing back or we're going to have to help swing it back. One of the things that I always like about you in, in previous interviews, and we've actually co-presented a few times together in the past as well, but you talk about how you're anti-common sense. And so tell me about that sort of in the vein of there is people that are addicted. You know, you said the third revolution was computers. We're addicted to our screens. We've got to have our phones everywhere. This transhumanism sounds as scary as it probably is. And then you've got people saying, well, everybody's doing it. So talk to me about why you say I'm anti-common sense. What I'm trying to say with anti-common sense is common sense does not exist per se by itself. People need to be exposed to the same information so then commonly known that thing happens. For example, if I tell you a red car, my red might be completely different than you. And my car might be completely different because in communication, think about it. I have an idea, an, an image, an idea in my head. I translate that into words. I transmit the words. You get those words and make an image out of those words. Most likely, my image and your image and the first time is going to be completely different. So it's going back and forth until we have the same thing. Ah, red car, Ferrari. Ah. So once you and I have the same image, then it's kind of a common sense. It's common sense that if you touch that, you're going to get burned. Yeah, but you had to get burned once to learn that. Right. So it's common sense exists when everyone was exposed to that same information. If not, it is not common sense. What I do with especially nurses coming out of school is do not judge. Do not complain that the patient is screaming at you because you don't know what that person has gone through in their 80 years of life. If you were able to see every single that that person went through in their life, you might have a completely different perspective. So for me, it's being a mindful that common sense really does not exist. It's easier for you not to judge people. I think a great example I can share, Jorge, about different perspectives is when my two-year-old thinks that my meal is his, which he <laughs> says mine's, and in his mind, that is his meal, and I would disagree but what I think is so interesting, what you're talking about is sort of an underlying issue that can really pervade organizations. And you have a lot of different people, whether it's nurses versus physicians versus security guards versus administration, you've got these different people who sort of take on this perspective, whether it's individual or whether it's a small group of people against the other. It's sort of an us and them. 
And you talk about overcoming this in sense of a culture, and you call yourself, as I introduced in the beginning, a culture architect. Tell me about this, because one of your most poignant phrases is that culture is not a coincidence, it's a consequence of something. So when we've got different perspectives all kind of roiling within the same organization, what could leaders or just anyone who wants to improve culture who's listening to this, what could they do to better understand culture, the way that you studied it, and then to try to improve that culture together? Culture, the root of the word comes from the Greek colier, which means cultivate. That's why it's agriculture or physical culture or floriculture for the flowers. So culture to cultivate, it's a process to get something. When you ask the question, what is culture? That's something when I was a kid, I just couldn't really grasp because people would tell me, look at the Japanese culture, the American culture, as if culture was part of your DNA. But since I, I've been exposed and I've been on a plane since I have memory, I've been exposed to many different cultures, I was able to see that people can behave differently. The same people can behave differently depending on the environment. And that's where my culture architecture started. Since I was a kid challenging the status quo by saying, no, it's not about where you live or where you're from or what's your nationality. It has to do about something different. Best way for me to describe this, because for example, I could show you a picture of South Korea versus North Korea. How come? Same language, same, it was the same country. Same peninsula. Same peninsula. It got divided. And now the South is a powerhouse and in the North they're starving. Or Venezuela. I was able to work in Venezuela before Chavez and it was one of the best, if not the best country in Latin America. And it took them three or four years to ruin it. Why? Best way for me to describe what is culture or how you can generate a certain culture. Imagine that I take you and another group of guys into a soccer stadium. I split you 11-11 and give you the uniforms because we're going to play soccer. But right before we start the game, I tell the teams, from now on you can grab the ball with your hands. You can hit your opponent. There are no fouls. Every score is 10 points. Would it be the same sport? No. But, but why? Because it's the same player, same stadium, same everything. What did we change? The rules of the game. The rules of the game is what with time creates a completely different outcome. When Venezuela changed power a few years later, the outcome completely different. Or Northern South Korea. The rules were completely Correct. different. So as a culture architect, for example, one of my clients, low-cost airline in Latin America, we want to have a culture of safety. Tell me, what is culture of safety? We want everyone to think about safety. No, no, that is not observable. Give me behaviors. Okay, I want to make sure that the plane doesn't leave if it's not signed by maintenance. Okay, that's an observable behavior. If I see something on the floor, I pick it up. That's a behavior. So we go and I say, okay, tell me, you want a culture of safety, of efficiency, and of attitude. Okay, so we define those behaviors that are observable so we can monitor and we can track it and then we can reinforce it. Because, for example, and this is something that I have in the book, is when I was a kid, I would see in Tijuana a Mexican or Central American behaving really bad. But as soon as this person crossed the border to San Diego, became a perfect citizen. Or an American perfect citizen, San Diego crossing to Tijuana and becoming a mess. Was both ways. Correct. Because here, and you might say, well, in Tijuana you also have rules. Yeah, but if I cross a red light, nothing happens. But if I cross a red light in San Diego, there might be a consequence. 
So it's not only the rules, but the reinforcements and enforcement mechanisms to make sure that those rules happen. And it was a long answer to a quick question. Is if I was the CEO of an organization and I want to have or redefine specific culture to think about what are the rules of the game, how I envision my people behaving, I put that on paper and then I make sure that people on the floor, the supervisors, are trained and those are the ones enforcing those behaviors. And that's how you generate that culture. You might not know that 60-70% of employees of Disney parks are not Disney employees. Are temps, but they behave like Disney employees. Why? Because they have such a good enforcement mechanism, which are the supervisors that are constantly enforcing to every single employee on the floor behaving the way they should behave. And most people can plug right into that Disney way, and that's something you've studied intensely. In fact, in the last podcast appearance you made, I loved your example of you know an automotive plant in Mexico following the Japanese system and watching those people come in and learn that, that they had learned before, it's not part of their country, and then performing completely differently. And I like the way that you take the vantage point of the CEO. And I think everyone can kind of take a leader perspective, whether you're listening as a CEO or not, that you need to demonstrate those observable behaviors. Too often we fall into the mission, vision, values trap. I want to ask you about that next because we think, well, of course we've set the rules. We have these five you know, values that we do. And so often those can just sort of be empty attributes versus actual observable behaviors. What is your advice, especially in 2023 when people are taking stock of those things? We're coming out of COVID and saying, who are we? What do we stand for? What are our values? What would you tell to anyone in an organization who wants to improve and take on that perspective of observable behaviors? Well, it's going to start with revisiting the purpose. Because vision, or let's, let me put it this way, a mission is what we do. A vision is what we want to achieve. Purpose is why we exist. What would happen to this country or to my community if we did not exist? Having that why clear allows you to also verify that the values are aligned to that purpose. And below each one of those values, you got to have observable behaviors. And why I say observable? Because if you cannot observe that, how can you measure? Because what you don't measure, you don't track. What you don't track, you don't control. What you don't control, you don't improve. So if you want to improve your culture, you need to start by measuring what? Behaviors. So the only way, as a culture architect, yes, I might just stop at the design is like an architect that they design the blueprints and the actual construction of the building starts when you have those behaviors being enforced and reinforced on the floor. I think that's so powerful. I want to get to the worker level of this and just anybody that's on the ground floor. Let's take a break from healthcare and organization. I have a new feature okay. that you don't really know about, and that's the point, and that is called the speed wrap. So you don't have prior experience with this part of the podcast, Jorge. Right. So I'll jump right in. Coke or Pepsi? Ah, neither. <laughs> okay. Well, well, water. Water. Okay. Yeah. Healthy answer. Fiction or nonfiction? Uh, nonfiction. Nonfiction. Okay. Morning person or night owl? Morning. Morning person. Okay. I'm, I'm not surprised by that. Favorite TV show of all time? Oh, my God. This one tends to stump people, I think. I didn't watch that much TV. I, I was kind of on earth. 
But if, if I were to choose, obviously, it has to be a TV, uh, an American TV show. I finally stumped you. You want to substitute favorite movie? You want to do favorite movie instead? Yeah. The Ten Commandments. Okay. I've seen that. It's a great movie. Yeah. Boston or New York? Boston. Boston. Okay. Very nice. But by far. <laughs> All right. You heard it, New York. Jorge is, uh, he's picking Boston. No, let's dig back in. You do a great visualization of the organization, the vision, the mission, the purpose. And I think there's people on the ground floor who want to have that sense of purpose that we had prior to some of these revolutions. Yes. They don't feel they have. And we know through NRC Health, through workforce surveys, but also patient experience surveys, you can tell when someone is rudderless in their role and their role is patient facing. You give a piece of advice in your book that you say, above all else, avoid being seen as a commodity and avoid being part of the transaction. If I'm an individual trying to regain my purpose in whatever I do, could be any part of healthcare, any role, could be a CEO, but if I'm trying to regain my purpose, how do I go about doing that? Number one is the organization must be really good at communicating that purpose. But before that, obviously, you need to make sure that that purpose is inspiring. Because I've seen a lot of purpose in which inspires only shareholders. Or the board of directors Correct. that generated the... Sure. Right. So just to give an example, I mean, when you look at Disney, and just to say their purpose is to create happiness. So that purpose is really easily relatable when I'm on the floor. Even if I'm a janitor in Disney in a park, I know that by doing my job, I'm helping create happiness. Let me give you another example. Imagine a baggage handler in a Colombian airport, okay, that this baggage handler is at the rain. How can I feel that this job is making a difference? Well, we told these guys, look, if this airline did not exist, 8 million Colombian people could not fly. So thanks to your job, this airline exists and you're given the opportunity to own these Colombians to be able to pay really cheap prices for flying. So you're helping Colombia thrive. The guys, you could see that when they were helping or unloading this airline, they would be so careful and so proud. And then they would go to the one and you know, <laughs> it didn't connect. To make that engagement or to facilitate your employees engage, you need to be purposeful at defining and communicating that purpose. And the beauty of healthcare is that out of all the industries that I work in all these countries, this is the most purposeful driven, if you will, because this is the only industry in which I have personally worked. And you have the opportunity of touching so many lives for the rest of their lives. In the case of healthcare, it's really easy to relate to the relevance of your job. You know, if you do your job correctly, look at the consequence. A janitor in Mount Sinai, we tell him, things for your good work, there's no bacteria. No bacteria is no infection. No infection, there's no people dying. So they're not going to close the hospital. So that relevance, plus the purpose, plus that communication is going to be make it much, much easier. If you don't have that, it's harder to steal. you got to challenge people and say, hey, when you die, what was the purpose of your life? And many, many, many people don't think about it. When the sad part of it is that the only thing certain in life that we all are going to die. It's not if. And we don't think and we don't prepare for it. 
And there's such an interesting reflexiveness of that really deep question. I mean, everyone listening, I think now is your time to start thinking about that, right? And you actually framed that originally as an organizational question. What would happen if we stopped existing, yeah. you know, as part of your mission, vision, answer? And I think that it can work at the individual level, but that also demonstrates that individuals are in this together with an organization. And I really like your answer that people can reinstill their sense of purpose. It seems like everybody in healthcare at one point felt that calling to come to healthcare or felt that instant connection. Maybe we've lost it in the last couple of years, which would be excusable, but we need to reignite it. One of the things that I think you talk about that's so poignant and helpful is designing culture, which Jorge, I really don't think people think about culture in that way. I think I'll base it a little bit off of leaders I talked to, but culture is just sort of this thing that they hope it improves or they hope they can stave off any damage to it. And they just kind of, it's this living, breathing thing that they don't have total control for. You don't believe in that. You believe that culture is something that you can design, you can build, you can do things with control at any level in the organization. Tell me more about that, because I think people could benefit from this idea of how do I design culture? You're going to start by asking, what is it that I want? Where is it that as an organization, we need to move towards? And what is the type of people or behaviors to make it happen? For example, when Microsoft started, I don't know if on purpose, but they created a culture with a lot of conflict. Like it, it's a lot of uh, competition. Yes. So it is approved, it is accepted that you can backstab someone back. And, and again, I'm, this, I'm, I'm talking about uh, stories that I've heard. Of course. But that's something that you and purpose wanted your teams to be against each other. Or you have some other organization that is like, no, we want communication. And you design the organization to be like kind of an entrepreneur. Entrepreneurs or all these organizations sometimes have this idea and their culture comes as a consequence of that founder's vision or that founder's personality. And the culture reflects that founder's personality. When that founder dies, or when that founder sells the company, that's when everything goes astray because those behaviors that were not written were copied from the founder. So yes, culture, as I said, is the word itself means like cultivate. So it's, if you just put a seed on the ground, gonna grow with a random shape. But what the vine in the vineyard, for example, you put the seed, but you put these guides, and the plant starts growing and following those guides, and you get the shape that you want. But you have to know what is the shape of the plant. Some people in some gardens, they do like an arch or like a circle, and the plant takes the shape of the guide. That is exactly what we do to design it. So if I'm a CEO and I know that I must change my culture, I got to start by defining in my mind. And then in paper, is it going to be a round, a square, a triangle? And obviously, um, it's just analogy, but it's, do I want a culture of inclusivity? Do I want a culture of efficiency? And then clearly, and go, going back to the same answer I already gave you, which is think about observable behaviors. Because if you cannot observe them, you cannot truly make sure that uh, people are behaving the way they should behave. 
Well, the seed analogy brings it sort of perfectly full circle to your original answer about culture, agriculture, which as someone in Nebraska, I greatly appreciate the analogy. <laughs> it's got me thinking about the cornfields back home. But I think that's a really important point. We are not, as leaders or anyone in the organization, it just doesn't seem like we look at it with that intentionality, that we can plant seeds, that we can design some of these things to come to fruition. Or when we try to do it, we don't give ourselves enough time or devote enough energy, and we think we can turn and change the culture at will. And you know, that's not true. Culture is not something that you can just turn on a dime based on what you want it to be. Correct. Culture, generally, you see that, ah, oh, it's an HR stuff. Culture should be under the COO. This culture is a consequence of a good execution. Now, the COO is going to follow and execute based on the CEO's vision of where we're heading. But culture should be part of the COO's job performance metrics. Say, you must ensure that you keep executing this way so culture remains. Example, we're doubling the size from you know, three locations to 30 locations. Who's going to make sure that the other 27 locations have the same culture? Or worse, if you grow by acquisition. Because if you grow organically, it's a little bit easier. Because you already have the templates and you go on. These are the processes. And before can correct. remain the same. And new people come in and say, they don't know the before and after. They just know, oh, okay, this is the way people behave. And they just behave like that. So from a culture perspective, it's better if you grow organically. Typically speaking, from a business standpoint, it takes a lot of time. So most organizations, they grow by acquisition. That's when you have a challenge because you have culture A, culture B, culture C, culture D. And how do you make that transition? Because these people are used to this way of behaving. Now you're telling me to go to this way of behaving, and that's where it takes a lot of time. So even if as a CEO, I decide this is the culture that I want, then the question is, okay, how many locations, how many people I'm going to have to change from A to B? And as you said, it, if it's a small team, it's going to be easier than if it's a really large team. Just as moving a small boat, you can do with the hand. To move a transatlantic, you need a lot of force. So it's, that's where you get into the physics of change. I think that's powerful. And I, you know, how many COOs really own culture? That's a lot of food for thought. And I could listen to you talk about culture for days, but I do want to close by asking this question to you, you had a great answer first time around, and we'll talk about different perspective, but I think someone would benefit if they were on day one in healthcare. So first job, first day in healthcare. What advice would you give them, Jorge, if you were sharing an, an elevator ride with that person on day one? Please challenge the status quo. Because what I've seen when I came into healthcare after working in so many other different industries, healthcare is like in in an inertia mode, and they don't look outside of healthcare, you know, for benchmarking. So if you're coming into healthcare, challenge why this is done like this. Because most likely, when they don't know they don't, because they've been in this industry forever. So whenever you come in, challenge it. And even if you're not satisfied with the answer, write it down and have a list of the things that does not make sense to you. Because if a thing doesn't make sense to you, most likely it doesn't make sense. But if you don't write it down to later revisit it, after six months of being in healthcare, you're part of the same thing. That's my advice. Do not be afraid of challenging the status quo. I love that. I think that's good advice for someone on day one or 
day 3000 or, or more. I appreciate all of your perspective and the way that you think about culture is so different and so beneficial for us to, to put ourselves in those shoes as well. Again, your book, which is all about this performance habit is out now. We'll link to that in the commentary for everyone to check out more. But I just want to thank you for being a returning guest on Patient No Longer. Thank you, Jorge. Thank you for inviting me back. I'm more than glad. Hey, third time's a charm. We'll have you back again. And we thank everyone. Looking forward. Wonderful. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We will see you again soon. And that's the show. Thank you for joining us today as we exchange ideas, share struggles, and celebrate triumphs. Come back next month as we continue our journey through the magical and maddening world of healthcare. Never miss a show. Subscribe at nrchealth.com slash patient no longer or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm Ryan Donahue, and you've been listening to Patient No Longer, a presentation of NRC Health, the founders and lead architects of human understanding in healthcare. Until next time. Next time on Patient No Longer, Prisma Health's Vice President of Experience, Safety, and Quality Operations, Corby Miller, joins us to explore why system work is culture work. You might not get the biggest bang for your buck, so to speak, with the efforts that you're putting in towards your people if you don't have strong systems to support that. So I'm going to give you an example. Tune in next week as we walk through this idea that helps create the best possible outcomes. And make sure you're following and subscribing to Patient No Longer wherever you get your podcasts.